Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 273. I do. Do I? This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Scott, Gregory, and Lisa for signing up already. Last episode was a bit busy. We talked about the rapid growth of Athelflaed's power, Edward militarizing Athelflaed's borders, and then visiting her capital city and bringing his army with him. We also talked about how she died shortly thereafter, and Edward ordered his army to occupy the city. And then we talked about the signs of rebellion coming out of northern Mercia, and how Edward eventually captured and disinherited his niece, Aelfwyn, second lady of Mercia. And judging by your emails, you found that series of events just as suspect as I did. But, as I'm learning is the case with Edward, once you start digging into the story, more skeletons seem to rise to the surface. There's a lot more unexplained and unsavory events that seem to hide just under the ink of the Chronicle. And we're going to talk about another one today. This one has to do with his marriages. But before we go into the detail of Edward's saga, let's take a moment to chat about marriage in general, because we haven't done that yet. So first off, why do it? Today, people get married for all kinds of reasons. The romantics among us like to believe that people only bind their legal lives together out of an expression of their deep love and affection. But that actually isn't the case for everyone, not even in the 21st century. And it certainly wasn't always the case in the past. And that goes doubly for those in power. So that brings us to our core question here. Why would a West Saxon ruler in the 10th century decide to get married? What motivated them? What caused these marriages? And this is a real question, because actually, starting with Alfred's dad, King Athelwolf, we've had some pretty weird marital situations coming out of Wessex. And that weirdness continued through his grandson, Edward. So what was driving that? What was the culture surrounding marriage and married life among the West Saxons? Well, by now, you might have noticed that I'm not giving you my usual preamble. I'm not talking about our lack of sources. And that's because this episode actually has a hero in it. His name was William of Malmesbury. He was a 12th century historian, and critically, he had the foresight to consult, quote, a certain ancient volume, end quote, when talking about these issues. And it's a volume which, unfortunately, has been lost to time. But thanks to his reference and the inclusion of the material that he gleaned from it, we have a surprising amount of detail on West Saxon marriage. So, thanks to William... We know that the purpose of upper-class Anglo-Saxon marriages during this period was essentially twofold. The first was the production of a male heir, and preferably also a spare or two. After all, mortality rates were pretty high for infants, and even after you got out of infancy, survival rates only got marginally better for quite some time. We've talked about this in prior episodes, but death rates early in life were big enough that they significantly dragged down the average life expectancy of people during this era. But there was some good news. If you managed to live to see 20, you had a pretty good chance of living a long life. Provided, of course, that you could also manage to avoid the Danes. But the main trick was getting to 20. So, that's goal number one. 
have a marriage that produces enough male children that you can get one of them on the throne after you die. Goal number two is slightly more abstract. Politics. Essentially, you often got married to protect your kingdom or to secure your dynasty's hold on that kingdom. The West Saxon royal marriage was a way to reinforce alliances or to gain support from influential families or to protect your family from the machinations of one of your rival dynasties. That sort of thing. So marriage was strategic. And this isn't a huge surprise, as we've seen it again and again with the West Saxon kings. King Athelwolf married into the dynasty of the Isle of Wight to bolster his influence in court. And then he had his daughter married to King Burgred of Mercia to reinforce his northern border. Then after his wife died, he remarried to Judith, who was the daughter of Charles the Bald, which provided him much-needed support from across the channel. And actually, that was such a good deal that when Athelwolf died, his son Athelbald tried to duplicate that strategy by also marrying Judith, though that backfired as it ended up straining another important alliance, the church. But ultimately, for the ruling classes, marriages were an important diplomatic tool in the toolbox. It was a powerful chip to be played. And for that reason, it was actually quite rare for the heir to the throne to get married prior to becoming king. And that's for good reason. If the heir to the throne got married prior to his ascension, then suddenly the carrot of a potential marriage would be lost, and rival dynasties would have one less reason to play nice. Furthermore, the bride's family, your new in-laws, would suddenly be elevated, and that might not be in the current king's interest, since he already had a group of in-laws that he had to keep happy and safe. So in general, the heir to the throne was unmarried when he went and took the throne. But you might remember that when Alfred became king, he'd been married for three years. That was a rather unusual move. And one potential reason for why that happened is political necessity. His bride was part of the Mercian royal dynasty. And that was a group that the House of Wessex needed for support against the Viking threat. Furthermore, at the time of his marriage, he wasn't king. His older brother, King Athelred, was. And Athelred was young. And he already had two male children. So there's a good chance that Athelred looked at the situation and thought, what are the chances that Alfred will be king in three years? Not very likely. Better to have him marry the Mercians and strengthen our political alliance up there. But it didn't quite work out the way that Athelred probably thought it was going to, because through a series of unlikely events, suddenly, three years later, you have Alfred on the throne. But that was the exception. And actually... Alfred continued the policy of using marriage to secure the kingdom. He married his daughter Athelfled to Athelred, Lord of Mercia, which bolstered his influence on the Midlands. And then he married another daughter, Ailthrith, to Judith's son, Count Baldwin II of Flanders. And through that marriage, he was further tying his dynasty to the powerful Carolingian dynasty of the continent. And this wasn't just about status. These marriages had real-world strategic importance. We haven't discussed it much in the show yet, but marriages like this have significant impacts on the political fortunes of leaders for generations. It's not unusual to see cousins from the continent playing important roles in the rule of English kings, even though their familial links are separated by generations and by a big-ass ocean channel. Furthermore, these marital ties are difficult to break. Archbishop Theodore, speaking at the Synod of Hartford, made the church's position quite clear. Quote, Lawful wedlock alone is permissible. 
Incest is forbidden, and no man may leave his wife except as the gospel provides for fornication, end quote. So as a West Saxon king, you're in this marriage for life. Unless, of course, she cheats. In fact, according to the church of the time, even the death of your wife doesn't necessarily grant you another go. A common church adage was, one wife, one life. Now, of course, the law is one thing, and human behavior is often entirely another. And the fact that the archbishop needed to clarify that only lawful wedlock was permissible tells us all we need to know about how common unlawful unions likely were. In addition to the sorts of dalliances we might recognize from our culture, all over the Anglo-Saxon communities, you had old forms of previously legal and semi-legal setups, including concubinage, polygamy, and remember when King Athelbald of Mercia was raiding nunneries? The Anglo-Saxons were straight wilding, and in response, the church was trying to clamp down on them. And this project actually went a lot farther than what we would consider sane today. One rule even bans marrying any relatives of your godparents on the grounds that that counts as incest as well. The kids of your godparents. That's crazy. But a lot of marriage rules that we take for granted as cast in stone were being actively built and enforced at this point in history. And because humans are humans, this project wasn't all that effective. Archbishop Theodore set down those rules back in 673. And fully two centuries later, you had King Athelbald of Wessex. That was a different Athelbald than the one that was raiding nunneries, but still a bit shady. So King Athelbald of Wessex went and hauled off and married his teenage stepmom. Not exactly what Archbishop Theodore had in mind. But at the same time, King Athelbald of Wessex wanted access to those powerful Carolingians. So you can start to see what he was after, right? So keep all of this in mind when we discuss royal marriages. The incentives and pressures around marriage for a king didn't always align with what the church was trying to put forward as a godly union. This was a continual fight, and even on a good day, it led to some hard choices. And on a bad day, it seems to have led to some pretty weird ones. So let's get back to Edward. As you might recall, one of the first things that Edward did upon the death of his father was that he married a highborn woman. Her name was Aelfled, daughter of Elderman Athelhelm. And that was a bit of a sticky wicket for Edward, because at the time, he already had a consort. Her name was Egwin. Now, some say that she was a concubine, but others say that she was his lawful wife. One thing that isn't contested, though, was that she was the mother of two of Edward's children, Athelstan and Edith. So no matter which way you slice it, Edward was either breaking the rule of one wife, one life, or he was out there practicing unlawful unions. Regardless of which it was, this was a scandal. And making the whole thing even stranger, we don't know what happened to Egwin. We don't know if she died or if she was simply set aside. Whatever it was, though, Egwin was out. And apparently, so were her kids because Athelstan was shipped off to Mercia to live with Auntie Athelflaed. And now, Elfled, daughter of Athelhelm, was the new king's wife. And the question of who Elfled was is still being debated, but a popular theory that's been advanced by Professor Stafford and is supported by scholars like Sheila Sharp is that Athelhelm, her father, was the same Athelhelm who was the younger son of King Athelred of Wessex. 
Alfred's older brother. And that would make Ilfled, daughter of Athelhelm, Edward's cousin. Which would have been another problem for the church. I mean, this is the same church that wasn't okay with people marrying their godparents' kids. So kissing cousins is straight out. But that right there should tell you how important these marriages were. Edward needed another male heir. But he also had a much more pressing issue to deal with that only Elfled could help him with. He was dealing with a growing insurgency from the Athelred wing of his own family. And that insurgency was being led by Elfled's uncle, Athelwald. So marrying Elfled very well could have been Edward's attempt at reuniting the dynasty and thereby heading off a potential civil war. And so he likely made the calculation that that was worth risking an outraged church. Now, of course, we know that it wasn't going to work out and that Athelwald was headed to rebellion regardless of who he was married to. And it was a rebellion that continued until Athelwald died in battle at the hands of Elderman Sigahelm of Kent. But the fact that he went and did this should give you an indication of how weighty these unions were and also how intensely political they could be. But don't forget, they weren't just wielded for political purposes, like trying to prevent an interdynastic struggle. He also had another purpose. Fertility. And while Edward's marriage to Elfled might have failed on its political purpose, it was remarkably successful in the secondary purpose. In the about 20 years since they got married, Elfled had been a remarkably fertile king's wife. She had at least 10 children with Edward. Furthermore, many of them were incredibly well-placed in society. Edgifu was married to King Charles III of France, and she would go on to give birth to King Louis IV. Her sister Aedhild would go on to marry Hugh the Great, while her other sister, Aedgith, would go on to marry the Holy Roman Emperor Otto I. Other daughters were also being well-placed in nunneries and other areas of society. They were really good at this, but you might have noticed a small problem there. Well-placed daughters wasn't the goal of a West Saxon marriage. What they wanted was heirs. And to do that, you needed boys. And despite the fecundity of their union, only two of their children were boys. And 25% isn't a very good grade, not even at a charter school. But even though it was a pretty low grade, Edward still had an heir and a spare. And that's not even counting his firstborn son from Egwin, Athelstan. So on balance, Elfled was still a rather successful West Saxon king's wife. And then, on 917 or 918, so right about when Athelflaed was absorbing large portions of the five boroughs and was arranging that alliance with Jorvik, King Edward went and did something really odd. Despite the rule of one wife, one life, despite the fact the church was quite clear that you can't get out of a lawful marriage unless there's cheating, and there was no indication of cheating. Despite the fact that Edward had already tested the church's tolerance by marrying Ilfled in the first place, even though he had a couple kids with Egwin. Even despite the fact that Ilfled was his wife of nearly two decades, and based on what little we know, she was actually a really good king's wife. Despite all of that, right in the middle of all of this political turmoil and the growing influence of his sister, Edward risked it all and chucked Elfled into an abbey and remarried. Now, sometimes couples just don't work out. 
but Edward and Elphud had been together for nearly 20 years. And the fact that they were together for that long, and the fact that he made this move during a period where he was in a politically weird position thanks to his sister's growing influence, well, I just find it hard to believe that this was a simple matter of Edward looking to get some strange. And besides, the dude was a king. I'm sure he could have gotten something on the side without throwing everything into chaos. So there had to have been a reason for this. And that leads us back to our discussion of why West Saxon royals got married. So question number one, did Edward toss his wife into an abbey and remarry because he needed an heir? No. At this point, Edward had three living sons, Athelstan, Edwin, and Elfweird. Furthermore, the heir, the spare, and the spare's spare were all fully grown. So the marriage had met its first purpose. It had produced heirs to the throne that were old enough that you could be relatively certain that they would survive and be able to inherit. So that leads us to the second purpose. Politics. Marriages were often wielded to create alliances and protect political flanks or prevent conflict. So was there some sort of political benefit to this marriage that would outweigh any backlash Edward would get from the church? Not to mention any backlash he'd get to anyone still loyal to Elfled, meaning basically anyone still loyal to the Athelred wing of the House of Wessex. That's a pretty big question. And to justify such a drastic action, I would expect something pretty big here, like a Carolingian princess, or maybe a marriage alliance with a large threatening Viking kingdom like Jorvik or the recently reestablished Dublin. And it's clear that Edward had some juice in the marital field. His daughter was married to the King of France. So surely we're going to see him get married to a major political figure here, right? Well, that all depends on how much you like Kent. Because Edward incurs all this drama just so he can marry Ed Gifu of Kent. And right about now, you're probably asking, who the hell is Ed Gifu of Kent? And why does she matter? Well, she was the daughter of Elder Sigibhelm of Kent. So it's not like she was just some random Kentish peasant. She's the daughter of a nobleman. But there has to be something more to this, right? Because there are plenty of noblemen in Europe. And it's not like Kent is a huge power player in European politics, so much so that Wessex needed to tame it. I mean, Kent was Kent. And lately, Kent wasn't even Kent. Kent was just part of Wessex. So what gives? Well, one potential clue to all of this lies in a Gifu's father, Sigahelm. He wasn't just some minor player in Kentish politics. Sigahelm was a big deal. Do you remember when Edward went to war with his cousin Athelwald? The whole thing was pretty ugly. Athelwald was out there fighting alongside a bunch of Vikings and East Anglians, heading off against Edward and his West Saxon army. But it wasn't just the army of Wessex. There was also the army of Kent. And the army of Kent was led by Sigahelm. And Sigahelm wasn't messing around. Partway through the campaign, Edward ended up ordering the retreat. But Sigahelm refused the order and continued to raid throughout East Anglia. And when the army of East Anglia and Athelwald bore down upon him and his Kentish warriors, Sigahelm stood his ground and fought them to the death, taking with him the king of East Anglia and the cause of the civil war, Athelwald Atheling. So Sigahelm wasn't just a war hero, though he certainly was that. 
He was also an elderman who was powerful enough that he was able to ignore his king's direct orders. And the fact of the matter is that the eldermen of Kent should be powerful. After all, Kent hadn't always been a province. It was a recently annexed kingdom. And it's clear from Sigahelm's behavior that the position of elderman of Kent still had a lot of power and influence, even though they had lost the title of king. So, from Edward's perspective, keeping Kent closely tied to the House of Wessex wasn't exactly a terrible idea. And marrying a daughter to that glorious elderman might accomplish that. But there's a wrinkle here. The House of Wessex was already tightly linked to the Kentish dynasty. In fact, they'd been tied by blood for over a hundred years. King Egbert, Edward's great-grandfather, well, he was the son of a Kentish king. The House of Wessex in the time of Edward were descendants of the Kentish royal dynasty. So why marry into the Kentish dynasty again? And I'm going to bang this drum again. This marriage occurred during a time when Edward was busy positioning his daughter's marriages with continental rulers. And it was also during a time when there was a lot of threats coming from Scandinavia. And having the support of powerful continental rulers would have been really useful to the House of Wessex. So once again, what exactly made Kent so damn important? Well, don't forget that this isn't the first time that we've seen Edward do this. And the last time that Edward did a sudden wife swap, he was staring down the barrel of an interdynastic war. And while it is true that Kent had strong ties with the House of Wessex, Edward wasn't the only member of the House of Wessex. Any blood ties that Edward shared with that dynasty were also shared by one other person, Athelflaed. And Kent really was a powerful territory. It had an army that was strong enough to take out the King of East Anglia on its own. And they were also right on the border of Wessex. If there was a brewing interdynastic conflict, or at least the threat of one, you can imagine that Edward might have been getting a bit nervous about his eastern neighbors. Look at the world he was inhabiting. Wales, large portions of the five boroughs, and even Jorvik were coming under the dominion of Mercia, meaning Athelflaed. Meanwhile, all Edward had was Wessex, the newly annexed kingdom of East Anglia, and Kent. And if he lost Kent, that could severely tip the balance. So that's the political situation Edward was in, right before he chucked his wife into a nunnery at Wilton, so he could marry the daughter of a dead elderman. And then, moments later, he brought his whole army to Tamworth to visit his sister Athelflaed. And then Athelflaed died mysteriously, and he ordered his army to occupy the Mercian capital. And then, not long after, he captured and imprisoned his own niece, Ilfwin, the second lady of Mercia. And finally, he's finding himself embroiled in a lifelong rebellion out of northern Mercia. Now, to be fair to Edward, there might be innocent reasons for all of this. But the more that we look at the evidence, the more it's becoming clear that we need a really good explanation for what he was up to here. Because it doesn't look good. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter. You can find us at British Podcast. And you can join all our other communities by going to the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. It's not-